Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, it is Christmas Day in a slightly alternate universe. Everyone is stuffed, as is the way. Someone suggests, inevitably, a board game. Yay! Yell the kids. Out comes the board. It's four sides aligned with names of properties players can buy. All very familiar to you, I'm sure. Poverty Place sits opposite La Swell Hotel. Huh? That's right, it's time for the traditional family game of Landlords, where everyone has their eyes opened to the evils of rent gouging and the need for a radical new taxation system. Fun for the whole family. The funny thing is that this alternative universe isn't that alternative. This was really the original version of the game we all love to hate, Monopoly. Okay, here's a riddle for you. A man takes his dog to a hotel and when he arrives at the hotel, he discovers he is bankrupt. What's the answer? Well, actually, it doesn't really work, that riddle here, because, of course, here you are listening to a podcast about the invention of Monopoly, and, of course, the answer is Monopoly. But that was one of my favourite riddles when I was a kid, and out of context, if you just say it like that, nobody knows what it is. Try it, if you don't believe me, after you've listened to this episode. Try that riddle and see if anyone answers Monopoly. Um, I bet they won't. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast from History Hit about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. Monopoly, who came up with the game in the first place? What are its origins? Why is it so popular, I suppose? For a long time, everyone accepted the story that the game's publishers told us, that an American man called Charles Darrow invented the game out of the blue, sometime in the early 1930s. But then the true origin story began to come out and it was far, far more interesting, almost good enough, almost, to make you want to play Monopoly again. My guest today is David Parlett, Britain's leading expert on all things board games and inventor of many of his own games. By the way, don't rush off at the end of today's episode because we've got an added extra bonus. We did an episode a few episodes ago about nuclear fusion, the promise of nuclear fusion, clean energy, etc. And yesterday, the Department of Energy in the United States did a big scientific announcement. A big major breakthrough has happened. So we've got Arthur Turrell, who did that episode, back on just to give us an update about what's going on and why it is so exciting. Now, on with the show. Hold on to your bowler hats. Keep all small dogs and irons inside the old boot as we go to find the real inventor of monotony. I mean, Monopoly.
David, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're here to talk about the origins of Monopoly. I slightly roll my eyes when I say Monopoly. I mean, I grew up playing Monopoly, as, as most people did, but I don't ever remember finishing a game of Monopoly. It would always start with good intentions and very exciting and everyone would concentrate. And then, you know, after the sort of an hour or so where somebody had bought Mayfair in Park Lane and there'd be various fights and stuff and no one knew how much money people owed and there were backroom deals going on. The whole thing generally collapsed. Is there an end point to Monopoly? Before we start the history, I just that was just in my mind when I was thinking about it. Well, theoretically, the end point is when everybody has been driven out of the game because they have no more money left and only one person is left in. But of course, when you think about that, that could be very boring for everybody really? left in at the end. That's my point. It's kind of, I mean... I, I like Monopoly in terms of the idea and the, and the getting started and having all the money, but then it just kind of tails off. Like the Act Three of Monopoly, I always find is really quite tedious, and then everyone goes off and does other things. Well, that's quite right. In fact, many people don't play it according to the rules. I don't think very many people have actually read the rules. It's no. like every other game; it gets passed down from generation to generation, and people interpret their own rules. One of the most fascinating rule variations that occurs. Is is what people do with the free parking space. Theoretically, nothing happens on it. But there's all sorts of things that could happen. It could send you to jail. You could pay a fine for landing on it. You could even buy it and rent it out. Then it wouldn't be free anymore. I like that. See, we had a family, I think, well, my family free parking rules was all fines that go from community chess and chance end up in the middle of the board and whoever lands on free parking gets it yeah that, that's quite a common one is it, but it's actually it's, it's an interesting idea because I, and you've written about this i read an, an article that you wrote which was terrific and you make the, the the distinction between games like drafts or chess which can which evolve over time in a way they are they are sort of similar to to folklores rather than having an, an invention or an inventor as such and in a way monopoly kind of fits in between that because yes it has an inventor we'll go on to talk about that but it also has evolved a little bit through time certainly traditional games like chess and draft that you mentioned can be referred to as folk games by comparison with proprietary games and the thing about folk games is that they don't have any known inventor so nobody owns them but even proprietary games patented games like monopoly undergo changes by the people who play them and in that respect if they're very popular they will undergo all sorts of changes and in that respect they become folk games again interesting okay so who invented monopoly for a long time the publishers of monopoly first parker brothers and then hasbro insisted that monopoly was invented by an out-of-work heating engineer called charles darrow during the depression but that's not quite the full story, is it? He hadn't actually invented the game. What he did was to produce a brilliant design for the board, and it was that which got it published by the major companies. But before that, it had been invented, uh, in fact, first patented uh, in 1904 under a different name when it was called the Game of Landlords or the Landlords Game. Who invented the Landlords Game? What was it? There was a rather wonderful lady called Lizzie McGee, who was many things. She was a woman of many parts. She was a writer. She was very creative. She was very intellectual. She invented many games. Uh, having been employed as a stenographer, she invented a new type of, or more efficient type of carriage return for the typewriter. And she developed 
landlord game, not primarily as a game for fun, although she did invent fun games too. Her first game was a card game called Department Store, but she invented it as a political game in a sense. She wanted it to show the value of an economic model proposed by a chap called Henry George, who insisted that the only type of tax that any country needed to exert or to raise was the tax on land, because land belonged to everybody and it shouldn't be owned by individuals. Individuals, once they had got the land, could build properties on it and rent that, and they could, they could acquire money just by the things they did with the land. But the land itself was owned by the state, and there are many people who still insist that that would be the best thing that we could do today. Wow. So it wasn't really a game. It was more of a, a political expression. Yes. That kind of manifest itself in, in a playable game. How interesting. Yeah. She wanted it to be fun as well because she was a great games player. Just before we get into the game, just tell me a little bit about Lizzie McGee's background. You set her up as this, she a, 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 seems to be like a, a polymath and an intellectual. But where did, where did she come from? What was her background? Who are her parents? Like, wh Why have I never heard of her? I haven't been able to find out much about her mother, and I don't think her mother was a very strong influence on her life. She was very much a um, daddy's daughter type of woman. Uh, she once said that she'd been described as a chip off the old block, and she said she couldn't think of a better block to be a chip off than her father. Now, her father was a journalist, and he had himself been very much taken with the land tax system proposed by Henry George. So that's where she got that interest from. Does she have a kind of a libertarian streak? It sounds like she might have done. She was a very staunch feminist. Hmm. She was anti-marriage until she actually got married at the age of 44. She had been many things. I said that she got a job as a stenographer, hmm. But she also supplemented her income in the evenings by teaching land tax reform. She did a lot of writing. She wrote short stories. She wrote poetry. She published. She self-published an anthology of poetry. Which part of America was she from? She spent her life... She was born in Illinois, but she divided her life largely between Washington, D.C. and Chicago. Interesting. OK, well, you've painted a lovely picture of Lizzie McGee. Excellent. OK, how do we go from her to Charles Darrow, an out-of-work heating engineer? What's the connection there? That's an interesting history, too. In the first decade of the 20th century, there was a community, an experimental community founded at a place, uh, the community itself was called Arden. It's in Delaware, I think. And it was a community of economic experts, professors, left-leaning intellectuals, Quakers, and so on. And Lizzie took to spending her summers at Arden and she introduced the game there, and it was found attractive, particularly by an economics professor called Scott Neering. And he liked the principle of the game, and indeed the design which she had produced, and he used it as a means of teaching his economic students about capitalism That's interesting. and land properties. In fact, the original board, which Lizzie McGee, I think, designed and produced herself still exists and Arden itself still exists too. So 
at that time, during the teens of the last century, it was being played by a lot of Quaker communities throughout North America. It just went mm -hmm. from economics experts to their families, from their families to their friends. And of course, in those days, people were much more inclined than they are today to make their own games, do their own designs, uh, make their own rules and so on. And gradually, the theoretical anti-capitalist flavor of it got lost and people just concentrated, as Americans would do, on the fact of winning and making the most money. So people then saw it as, a, as just the, the interest of it was not for the, that it showed that being a big property owner was uh, in any way reprehensible. It was the target of life. So it sort of it sort of morphs in this sort of society. Tell me about Charles Dano, though. What what, what was the Charles Dano connection? Why did it move ownership okay. from Lizzie McGee to Charles Dano? During the course of the, the next couple of decades, it appeared under various different names. And because individual families would make their own games, some of them more enterprising than others would try and get them published. So there were several other versions of the game published under different names, such as Finance, for example, was one. But Monopoly, which Lizzie McGee never herself called it, was one of the games which Charles Darrow got hold of and his family played it and liked it. As I said, he designed this excellent board for Monopoly. It's a very good design. He did try getting it published by Parker Brothers, the big games company then, as indeed Lizzie McGee had attempted. They wouldn't publish it. She published it herself. So Charles Darrow did the same thing in 1932. And the game proved so popular that Parker's had second thoughts and decided that this should be a game that they would undertake. So, okay, so let me get. So we've got Lizzie McGee came up with the idea, and it's sort of you know she had a very interesting story, very interesting backstory, and it kind of developed over a couple of decades. Was reintroduced as Monopoly by Charles Darrow, who is sort of slightly lost in in the history books, but we know he was an, out, an un, unemployed heating engineer who spent his time designing games. And then he managed to sell it to Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers, obviously the big games company. They saw the potential of it, or what did Parker Brothers see in it then? I'm not going to say they saw the potential of it. They saw the success of it, and that's what made them grab it. But of course, Darrow claimed that it had been his invention. But they soon discovered, when they came to seek a patent for it under their own auspices, that it conflicted with Lizzie McGee's patent for landlord made in 1904 and renewed with variations in 1924. So they had that sort of fight on their hands. Now, the irony of all this is that Charles Darrow became a millionaire out of this and no longer had to be an out-of-work heating engineer. He could, be <laughs> he could just be out of work. <laughs> and what Parker Brothers did was to pay off Lizzie McGee $500 and promise to publish some more of her games, which they eventually did, but not immediately. And she was naturally very upset about this. She wrote a long article about it in the Washington Post, was it? Washington Times or something. But she always felt that life had been unfair on her in that respect. 
Well, it sounds like she's got a case of life being unfair. Basically, she came up with the original design, which changed. It sounds like it changed enough that other people could claim the patent and all that kind of thing. Was, was the sort of Parker Brothers monopoly with Atlantic City? Was that pretty much the Charles Darrow as Charles Darrow had done it? So all the things that we would recognise, things like free parking, go to jail. So when did Parker Brothers first release Monopoly, the game, to, under their under their they published it themselves in 1935, which was just two years after Charles Darrow had published his own version. Which leads me to my next question, because certainly if you're listening to this, well, if you're listening to this in America, we have lots of American listeners, when you think of Monopoly, am I right in th- thinking that the general consensus is the Atlantic City Monopoly? That's, and I know other cities now produce their own versions of Monopoly, but Atlantic City... I've, I've got a Philadelphia version. Okay. But for me, for me, and I grew up, and most you know, people in the UK, we think of the London Monopoly, which was not Parker Brothers. It was the Waddington Company, which was from Leeds. Now, I've got family from Leeds. And my father, I think it was my dad, my mum or my dad, I can't remember, always told me that the reason that the Monopoly, London Monopoly Board is the London Monopoly Board is because one of the Waddington's brothers or someone, an employee of Waddington's, got the East Coast Main Line down to London looked at all the streets near King's Cross, which is why there's... It's well, actually, I think he sent his secretary round with an A to Z of London or something, noting what sort of streets corresponded with what sort of streets from a class point of view and from a, a richness and poverty point of view with the, with the equivalents in, in Atlantic City. OK. Now, question. my next question, now I've got you, because this is the other thing that's been really... I've been wanting to ask. Where on earth... Did the playing pieces ideas come from? Why? It's so bizarre that you have something like a hat, a dog, uh, an iron, and these kind of strange and you know beautifully made metal pieces. You know that doesn't happen by accident. No. Well, I've got quite a lot of books about this subject, and <laughs> I haven't reread them all. But to the best of my recollection, these pieces were as they look like, charms off a bracelet that belonged to Charles Darrow's wife. Uh, Originally, the game that Lizzie McGee produced and all the people who invented their own versions would probably have used pieces that were already available from published games. The one that immediately springs to mind is Chinese checkers, which came out in the late 19th century. You have pawns of six different colours. So you just need one of each of those and you've got your pieces for Monopoly. Quite why they use these, I don't know. It may well have been Mrs. Darrow's idea. Wouldn't be surprised. But I love it. There's there's an eccentricity about all the different pieces. My dad, when we played Monopoly, would always be the old boot. You know, that was yeah. his thing. And, and I, I quite like the fact that the true story is lost in time. But I will take the Charles Darrow's wife's charm bracelet. Yes. It's it's too good a story to check too hard, but it's got a, it make it, it totally makes sense. Although why you'd have like an iron and an old boot on a on a charm bracelet? Listen, it's been an absolute delight to chat. I'm, I'm next time I play Monopoly, God knows, or Monotony, which is uh, what I like to call it. Next time I play, <laughs> I'm sure I will. I, I shall think of Lizzie McGee, this rather eccentric intellectual from Washington DC slash uh, Chicago. I shall think of Charles Darrow and wonder why he was an unemployed heating engineer. Like why? Depression. Why, oh, it was the depression, of course. Well, that makes, there you go. I shall think of his wife's charm bracelet. 
And I won't ask too many questions about that. And then I shall think of the Parker Brothers and I shall think of Waddington's. So many stories, so many stories, such an amazing game. David, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. And um, thank you for illuminating us. Great pleasure. We'll be back after this short break. On Gone Medieval from History Hits, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, that's it for Monopoly. Thank you very much, David, for joining me for that episode. Now, just quickly before we go, nuclear fusion power. We covered it a couple of months back, the history of an invention that doesn't quite exist yet, even though we all wish it did, because, of course, it means potentially the promise of limitless clean energy. At the end of the episode, I promised we'd get our guest, Arthur Turrell, back on if there ever was a major breakthrough. And lo and behold, it seems like there was just yesterday on the 12th of December 2022. So I caught up with Arthur to hear the big news and find out whether we can now say that nuclear fusion power has been officially invented or not. Good morning, Arthur. Hello. It's the 13th of December, 2022. We had some, well, there was a, one of those tantalising announcements. Oh, we're going to have a tantalising announcement on social media yesterday from the Department of Energy in the United States at the Lawrence Livermore Lab, the ignition facility that we talked about. Tell us what they told us. So they reported on the results of an experiment that happened last Monday where they wellied I think is the technical term, yeah. 2.05 megajoules of energy into a target that contains some fusion fuel. Uh, but the really exciting thing is what came out. So they got 3.2 megajoules of energy out. So that is more energy out than was put in. In fact, it's one and a half times the energy out than was put in. And this is a moment of history. No one in the history of fusion energy has ever managed to do this before in a controlled laboratory experiment. And it changes everything. So how much how much energy went in? 2.2? 
It's 2.1 megajoules. Okay, two point, for, the, for the uninitiated, what does 2.1 megajoules look like? How much energy is that in terms of kettles? I mean, what... what? It, it's not actually very much energy, so it's about the energy you need to, to boil a couple of kettles worth of water. So it, it's really not very much energy, and it was never meant to be either, because this is a single shot on a single experiment. And the important thing is that the energy that came out, which is about three kettles worth, is more than the energy that went in. That's, well, okay. Why should we be excited by that? So uh, there are two reasons why this is exciting. One is just the phenomenal science that has got us to this point. Insane levels of accuracy are required. A 0.1% error in the laser energy at the start of this laser pulse can degrade the fusion conditions by as much as 50%. You have to get to 10 times hotter than the centre of the sun, pressures 300 billion times those we normally experience on Earth. So just the science involved and the precision are, are just wondrous in themselves, even if we never use this. But for the rest of society, for the rest of humanity, the thing that's really exciting here is that this is a proof of concept that we can control the power source of stars here on Earth to produce energy. Give us the the, the, the briefest history of the facility itself, uh, Lawrence Livermore, you know, and, and how it started and where it is and, and how it all got going. Yeah, so Lawrence Livermore really was born out of the Manhattan Project to develop a fission-based bomb in the Second World War. And one of the kind of founding members was a chap called Edward Teller, who's probably most famous for partly being the inspiration between Dr. Strangelove. Uh, But he got the lab going and he was a key developer at Lawrence Livermore of something called the hydrogen bomb. So that's a a bomb, a weapon that's, that's based on fission and fusion together. And there's this great quote from Teller who said, said that as soon as we had demonstrated a weapon using fission and fusion, every bureaucrat and politician got on the phone to me and said, now you must show the problem of controlled fusion energy can work. So it's built into the DNA of this laboratory to work on fusion for energy as well. Scientists and big institutions love big and big grand announcements. Oh, we found life in the upper atmosphere of Venus or whatever it is. And then it always, everyone has to kind of backpedal a little bit after that. And everyone goes, well, actually, we're not quite there yet. Two kettles in, three kettles out isn't going to solve the world's energy problems. We're going to need something bigger than that, aren't we, to make it scalable? I mean, that, that's the real issue. I think it's worth having the context in mind here that you know this facility was really built just to demonstrate more energy out than in. It was never meant to be a prototype power plant. And Dallas, imagine if you'd gone to the US government and said, hey, I want to build a prototype power plant on a technology we don't even know if it works. <laughs> you need to show the proof of concept works first. And that is the point we've reached. It's pretty exciting. Okay, so in my excitement levels when I talk to my mum later... Be excited because just for the sheer science of it, it's exciting. You know, we've done something that we've been talking about. We've recreated stars here on Earth for the first time and actually proved the science has worked. Now we have to make it scalable somehow. And that's that's, prob- that's probably as tricky as the science. It's probably harder than the science. <laughs> I, do you know what? I'm not sure it is because we've got a clear path. We know it can work and it's just about finessing it now. So it's a bit like, you know, imagine the first motor engine. It, it was polluting. It was, you know, frankly crap. It made terrible noises, shut off all the time. But look at where we are with engines today. They're incredibly fuel efficient compared to what they are. Incredibly reliable. But, the you know, it, there was a clear path of kind of research and development. So we kind of know what we need to do now and we know that it can work and that removes a lot of the uncertainty so i think one of the biggest effects of this 
momentous result will be to crowd in interest, investment and innovation and set out a clear path for how we could develop this into a power source if we choose to do that. Brilliant. Arthur, thank you so much for coming on to, to explain. I'm going to put all my money in uh, lasers now. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to buy shares in lasers, big lasers. Who kettles. doesn't love a big laser? We love a big laser. I, I'm just imagining the kind of landscape of uh, you know wind farms, but also giant lasers, firing lasers at small protons. <laughs> thank you, Arthur. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. That's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for your company. Give us a rating, a five-star rating, if you like, and a review. It really helps others discover the show and it makes us feel good and it helps just it just do it, please. It'd be very, very kind of you. I know everyone's always asking you to give reviews and ratings and follows and likes and all that kind of stuff, but um, we would be very, very grateful. And also get in touch. We love hearing from you. We'd love your suggestions for future shows. We will, of course, credit you. We've had loads and loads of suggestions and we've done several shows based on listener suggestions. So do get in touch with those. I will see you next time. Thank you very much for your company. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.